Now, let's pick up the story uh, where we're in Harehan, Louisiana, and we've been drinking this weird, funny-tasting tea, and it, this is the end of that story. Here's how it ends. Carrie Thornley is going to the door to leave and say goodbye, and, and uh, brother-in-law uh, says, well, that's it. Uh, all we need to do is frame some jailbird for it. And Carrie said, why do you want to frame a jailbird? Why not frame a commie? And, uh, he said, well, Carrie, who would you suggest framing? And he was, uh, at that point, he, he smirked and he looked down at his shoes. He was uh, uh, obviously aware of what I was going to say, which was, oh, why don't you frame some communist? Two weeks later, Kennedy was assassinated, then Oswald was accused. I'd been in the Marines with Oswald. I had written a novel based on Oswald about a Marine who defects to the Soviet Union at the end of the book. Uh, it was like the main character of my book jumped up off the pages and shot this president that I'd wanted assassinated anyway. It was a very weird feeling of like being very close to the, to the crime without actually being connected to it at the time. Then came uh, Jim Garrison, who accused Kerry of meeting Oswald in New Orleans. Kerry swore up and down he didn't meet Oswald in New Orleans. But that was because he didn't remember anything. That was Sandra London a good friend of Kerry Thornley, who recorded him in the 1990s. There's a, there's a term the CIA uses, as I understand it, called programming. Or maybe it's an FBI term, maybe it's both. Anyway, it's an intelligence community term where they sit down with somebody and basically they, they tell them a bunch of things over and over again so that they will remember them. They call this programming. Fast forward, if you will, to the part where they killed Martin Luther King, and Carrie Thornley was living in Atlanta. Right about then, he was at a party. The party was invaded by masked men with guns who took nothing but Carrie's ID. Okay, so that happened. Then he read in the paper about the Martin Luther King assassination where a white supremacist was quoted saying they were going to blow <clears throat> his head off just like they did the president. And here came the trigger phrase, folks. It said in the Atlanta Journal, and blame some jailbird for it. And when Carrie read those words in the Atlanta Journal, that's triggered his memory to come back. Okay, it was a trigger, trigger phrase. phrase. Uh, the word jailbird rang a bell with me because I had talked to some weird Nazi down in New Orleans uh, between the Bay of Pigs uh, invasion and the Kennedy assassination during that three year period, who had talked about framing some jailbird for the Kennedy assassination. Kerry does remember, but his own role is part of a dream. 
His role in drawing the blueprint for Lee Harvey Oswald gets mixed up with other historical assassins. The assassin of Martin Luther King is another Oswald. These assassins get triggered by the hypnotist, the master of dreams and history. In this case, trigger is a technical term, and it refers to the science of mind control and hypnotism. And in this case, if there has been a hypnotic command, for it to be released, it has to be precisely exactly delivered, exactly as it is almost like, in our folklore, a magic spell. Carrie Thornley's memories began to come back, and that's when he began the phase of trying to write about this. But some memories are best to forget especially when it involves you being part of a plot to assassinate the President of the United States, John F. Kennedy. I am Andrei Kodrescu, and in this podcast, we try to untangle the weird relationship between Lee Harvey Oswald and Carrie Wendell Thornley, the second Oswald, between fiction and poetry. Here comes Oswald down the hall again. You buy that rifle. The dispatches you people have been given, but I emphatically deny these charges. I'm just a patsy. A few days later, Oswald is shot and killed while being transferred to the county jail. But Lee Harvey Oswald did not stand trial shortly after 11 that Sunday morning. With half a hundred newsmen, three television crews, and 70 police on hand, he in turn was fatally wounded as publicly as any man in history. The type of, of mind control I was experiencing at the time that I can positively identify as such was happening to me in the form of something very much like dreams as I was drifting off to sleep. Just before I went to sleep, they usually happened. And at that moment in April 1968, Kerry was flooded with all the memories hidden from him, and not only his own personal memory, but the historical memory of his time, possibly other assassinations. He has now fully accepted he was part of the conspiracy to kill the president. What's more, he was chosen to wake up Eris, the goddess of chaos, who loves the orgies of disorder. Even she employs the forces of darkness along with the ecstasy of the 60s. Carey's mock religious Bible, Principia Discordia, which he wrote to his friend Greg Hill in a bowling alley, has not gone unnoticed. Turns out that an entire generation of young people had been waiting for Eris to wake up. Rushing to help the birth of a new world of chaos is Robert Anton Wilson, an editor for Playboy magazine, who picks up the threads of the Principia Discordia and ties them to the mythological powers of other hidden conspiracies. Here is Wilson on a talk show in the late 90s. Uh, how it all started? It started with a fellow I used to know named Kerry Thornley, mm -hmm. who was one of the co-creators of the only religion I've ever been able to really enjoy, the Discordian religion which is based on worship of Eris, the goddess of chaos, confusion, discord, 
bureaucracy and international relations, the five <laughs> levels of chaos in the world. And, you know, the argument for the existence of Aris is very simple. If Aris doesn't exist, who put all this chaos here? <laughs> Nobody can answer. Anyway. Wilson saw archetypal ancient forces waking up and wrote his magnum opus, the Illuminatus Trilogy, which reveals them. Rosicrucians, Kabbalists, alchemists, Arab mystics, Qatars, Freemasons, the Protocols of Zion, time travelers, layers and layers of suppressed plots, obvious cellular atomic light imprisoned just under the skin of the enlightenment and reason by the guardians of order. Why this proliferation of the obvious is a huge fuck you to so-called civilized society. America is in for a ride. Anyway, Kerry got uh, indicted by Jim Garrison as one of the Kennedy assassination team. And uh, Kerry thought at the time, and all of us who knew him thought that Garrison was just off his head or an unscrupulous demagogue. <laughs> and then, to our great astonishment, a couple of years later, Kerry announced that he thought it was true that while he was in the Marines, he, he, he re thinks he remembers that he volunteered for an experiment and he thinks they gave him drugs and brainwashed him and turned him into a zombie like the Manchurian candidate. So he was part of the Kennedy assassination, but he didn't know it. You know, I mean, he has some <laughs> memories come back now and then. Was he one of the fake Oswalds that were... Uh, that, was one the that was one of the theories Garrison promoted. Mm -hmm. And where does Robert Anton Wilson get his stream of consciousness? Hidden forces. Uh, and around 1973, I became convinced for a while that I was receiving messages from outer space. But then a psychic reader told me I was actually channeling an ancient Chinese philosopher. And another psychic reader told me I was channeling a medieval Irish bard. And at that time, I started reading neurology and I decided it was just my right brain talking to my left brain. And then I went to Ireland and I found out it was actually a six foot tall white rabbit. They call it the puka and the Irish know all about it. So it depends on who I'm talking to, which of these metaphors I use to explain uh, where these uh, weird uh, patterns come from that jump out of the books and take hold of the readers and change their lives. It's not me, it's a six foot tall white rabbit from County Kerry. <laughs> or it's the left, it's the right hemisphere of everybody's brain. Mm -hmm. We're only different in the left hemisphere. In the right hemisphere, we all share in the same morphogenetic field. The collective unconscious. And the collective unconscious. In the rush that follows the rise of Eris from the chains of reason, how are Kerry and his associates going to help her along? Lightly, and semi-seriously, with humor and poetry. O-M-G-O-M-F, Operation, Operation Mindfuck. Mindfuck. Here is Jesse Walker, author of The United States of Paranoia, A Conspiracy Theory, explaining this new style of satire and enlightened sarcasm perfected by Robert Anton Wilson and Kerry Thornley. The ironic style of conspiracy thinking is for folks who are neither trying to prove a conspiracy theory nor debunk it. They're trying to play with it, mine it for the sort of great big mutant mythology that's behind it. 
Thornley and Wilson started inserting articles into different underground newspapers and writing prank letters to Playboy, claiming the Illuminati were responsible for everything from radical organizations to the success of Bob Hope, the comedian. The Illuminati took their name from a 17th-century Bavarian society set up to exchange scientific and magical information between wise men whose countries were often at war. The Illuminati and the Masonic lodges set up a world wide web through which they communicated outside religious dogma, censorship, and politics. Thornley heard this. He thought it was hilarious and Maybe they'd screw with Garrison and other people who believed this by sending these prank letters where uh, Thornley and uh, Robert Anton Wilson adopt, adopted these fake Illuminati names and claimed that, yes, and they'd send them to Garrison and some of these other investigators or different counterculture magazines or, you know, members of the John Birch Society send these letters off claiming that, indeed, they were members of the Illuminati, but they had nothing to do with the assassination. They were here to illuminate <laughs> people and raise their uh, consciousness. That was Adam Gorightly, who wrote several books on Kerry Thornley and Discordianism, including The Prankster and the Conspiracy, the story of Kerry Thornley and how he met Oswald and inspired the counterculture. So that was part of the activities of... Uh, so-called Operation Mindfuck, just to have uh, fun and uh, kind of mess with some people's uh, minds and create alternative narratives. Kerry Thornley and Robert Anton Wilson, with the help of psychedelics, set up a modern but still primitive means of communicating universal knowledge. That would eventually become the Internet, the house of knowledge and QAnon. Ares did not particularly distinguish truth from lies as long as they cause major disturbances. So it was natural, if you're interested in um, the ways that people in looking at the world impose a sort of order on it, that, you know, that these guys would get interested in conspiracy theories, since a lot of conspiracy theorizing is, you know, seeing what signals you can arrange, you know, to make sense of the world and, and make a more coherent picture. Um, and as we know, often with conspiracy theories, the coherent order is not really there. It is in the eye of the beholder. Well, I think we have to look at why people believe these conspiracy theories, and we can't just dismiss them as, as crazy people. We can't just put America on the couch and say, what a crazy country. We have to look at... What is it about the history of the uh, secret state in America that has led people to have these extreme deep state conspiracy theories? What is it about the CIA's plots against Castro, the FBI's spying on domestic dissidents, including Martin Luther King? What is it about these actual government activities that led people to believe that the government was capable of killing the president? Why would people so distrust the CIA that they would think that the CIA would actually kill the American president? That was Professor Catherine Olmsted, who wrote Real Enemies, Conspiracy Theories and American Democracy, World War I to 9-11. 
Another real conspiracy that Kerry tied directly to the JFK assassination was Watergate. Until Watergate, my consciousness was not high enough for me to perceive the reality of such things as the mafia and the CIA working together. I didn't, I had not conceived of things that way before. The Democratic National Committee is located in the Watergate office building. The burglars forced a stairwell door, then taped its latch open. The door, now part of police evidence, was noticed by one of the guards employed by the Watergate complex. At first, the police found nothing. Then they spied five men crouching behind some desks. Kerry thought that E. Howard Hunt, one of the burglars in the Watergate scandal, was one of the men he had met in New Orleans by the nickname of brother-in-law and they conspired to make Oswald into a patsy. Uh, another trail of evidence leads to Edward Howard Hunt. That's who I think it was. It still could have been somebody impersonating and looking as much as possible like Edward Howard Hunt. It still could have been somebody else. The intelligence community is deep and convoluted. It's very hard to figure out who's on which side unless you have a program, and I unfortunately do not have a program. As the Watergate scandal evolved and Hunt appeared regularly on television, Kerry incorporated E. Howard Hunt in his vision of Operation Mindfuck. Television and life are conjoined in America, and it is impossible to distinguish one from the other. Mix in a bit of your own mindfuck, and you have a rich world. It does come with dangers if one is also committed to a reasonable version of reality? Uh, not right away. There was not only the fear for my life, there was a fear that they would do something to my son, there was a fear that they would do something to my ex-wife, there was a fear that they would do something to my girlfriend. Uh, the closest any of those fears came to realization is that my girlfriend's cat disappeared, as far as I can tell, you know, and Robert Anton Wilson's daughter was murdered. Other than that, though, it didn't, that's, a, it was like most of the fears were unfounded. But what had already been going on was, in some ways, so much worse than that anyway, stuff that I didn't realize yet. So, like anything in Thorny's life, it was this continual evolution of his uh, theories, whether he's looking at uh, politics or this conspiracy uh, theory surrounding the JFK assassination as he took in more information you know, his kind of theories uh, changed and evolved or got crazier and uh, crazier over time. Carey's unleashing of Operation Mindfuck had personally malefic consequences. He started believing that his parents were Nazi agents. The Kennedy assassination was also a conspiracy of German Nazi breeding experiments that Kennedy and Marilyn Monroe had figured out. This is in keeping with Operation Mindfuck, but it isn't funny. Kerry was self-destructing. He had lost his sense of humor. Of course not, because first of all, uh, the chances that they would actually put me on trial are, are remote. However, if they did, that would be, it would still be worth it. I'm taking a calculated risk. Uh, what's important to me is to bring to the attention of the world what I have discovered as a result of... Uh, unraveling my involvement in the Kennedy assassination to my own satisfaction, which is that there is a genocidal conspiracy. There is a conspiracy to depopulate much of the world along racial lines. And I'm certain that the people I, were t I was talking to at the time uh, between the Bay of Pigs and the Kennedy assassination knew about that. 
And over time, Thornley began to suspect that uh, he had been part of some MKUltra mind control program that both he and Oswald perhaps had been uh, part of uh, one of those uh, programs that the CIA was running. And I say Carrie Thornley was what I call roadkill on the MK highway. They were just trying to experimentally find out what it would take to make someone do things that were against their own will up to and including murder, okay? So, here's what I say. Oh yeah, Carrie was definitely interfered with by some of the top people in the field. But it didn't work, and why? It didn't work because Carrie is one of those few percentages of the population that is an individualist and that does not care about being a pleaser or fitting in. In the following decades, the 1980s and 90s, Kerry Thornley dove deeper and deeper down the serious conspiracy wormholes opened by MK Ultra, causing him to lose touch with many of his old friends. Here is Bob Newport, who was friends with Kerry since they went to high school in Whittier, California in the 1950s. Now, what was fascinating to me, and I don't know exactly when it happened, but Carrie had a severe psychotic break um, and was incredibly paranoid. Um, and I, I know this for a fact because he came to visit me he had been living in the streets. He was still had a long beard, but he was <laughs> odiferous to say the least. Uh, dirty, tattered clothes. He came to visit me, and he ranted and raved the craziest stuff uh, for several hours before he decided I was <laughs> not somebody he wanted to talk to, and. And, of course, I was looking at him through uh, psychiatric filters. And um, had he not been a friend, had he been a stranger, showed up showed up at my house that way, I, I would have had him hospitalized. The story gets very sad with Thornley. He becomes extremely paranoid in the last two and a half decades of his life, um, sometimes lucid, sometimes not. You know, I've, I've read a lot of his writings from this period, and, and some of them are just ravings, and some of them are, you know, witty and self-aware and, and clearly the product of the guy who came up with the idea of discordianism. And uh, how did I meet Carrie? Well, it's a bit of a tale. I'll try to make it not too long. I was... Um, in the zine revolution in the 80s, and I was publishing uh, stories written by prisoners. And so I first became familiar with Thornley's work uh, probably in the late uh, 80s or so. I, I knew about Carrie Thornley for at least a year before I met him through Fact Sheet 5 uh, because he was also a zinester and he had a regular column every time it came out called Conspiracy Corner. And just because I read Fact Sheet 5 cover to cover, I would read his stuff. 
Um, so I vaguely knew who he was. His stuff did not uh, seem very uh, sensible. It seemed crazy. So, okay, this is interesting. Started reading uh, some some of these articles, and they didn't make any sense to me, really. <laughs> uh, but there was something intriguing about the writing, you know? And so he was, that name was kind of in my head. But then I, I was also heavily into... Uh, the Kennedy assassination at that point, reading about all the different conspiracy theories and uh, whatnot, and I learned that Thornley had his own uh, writings called about the Kennedy assassination called uh, Dreadlock uh, Recollections. Kerry was homeless on the streets of Atlanta, selling trinkets and his conspiracy zines to survive. Often you could find him in the Five Points neighborhood carrying a typewriter and selling his essays that he would type up on request. The world of the internet just around the corner would have made Kerry Thornley world famous. He was born one minute too soon. He was, unfortunately like many of us, in what we call the avant-garde. Like Moses, he didn't get to set foot in the Holy Land of JSTOR and QAnon. So there was no way to contact him. We didn't have email or anything in those days. So I just I was living in Atlanta, happened to be walking down the street and a uh, uh, little five points, and there he was. I recognized him because he had his picture in the um, conspiracy corner in fact sheet five going through the 80s. And I said, you're, you're Carrie Thornley. And he said, yeah, yeah, you got me. So I um, took him home, smoked him out, and we became best friends from then on. Sandra became close friends with Carrie and began recording his views and story. In her own right, she became famous for her books on infamous serial killers. She was the subject of a biopic documentary by filmmaker Errol Morris. In 1991, I traveled to New Orleans with Carrie Thornley to put him on TV for Steve Dunleavy to present him on A Current Affair. So during that trip, um, <laughs> I had a wonderful experience, and uh, both New Orleans and Carrie Thornley, uh, he, he just won't stop raving. And so we walked, and it was foggy. It was even foggy. Walking through the fog and the dawn and the, in the uh, French Quarter with Carrie raving, and then my mind just uh, kind of slipped a gear, and I just let it flow, and it was glorious. I think that's what New Orleans is all about. <laughs> First time in decades, he emerges from the shadows. Grim shadows that have cast a pall over a man with a frightening secret, a terrible boast. I wanted to shoot him. I wanted to assassinate him very much. You have just seen and heard a man called Kerry Thornley, who used the exotic background of New Orleans as his headquarters for a deranged plot to assassinate President John F. Kennedy. His one regret, his good friend and Marine buddy Lee Harvey Oswald got there before him. Did you like it? He was intellectual, he was well-read, he was intelligent, he was funny. Yeah, I liked him a lot, you know. 
Thornley, as a young man, liked Oswald so much that from this apartment on Napoleon Street in the French Quarter of New Orleans, wrote this book called Idle Warriors, in which Oswald appears as the hero. And that was one year before the assassination. That's right, one year before the assassination. Kerry went on to tell Sandra and the reporter on the show about his meetings with Slim Brooks and brother-in-law, the plot to frame Oswald. It was as if he wanted to unburden himself. I think an important thing to know about Kerry Thornley was that he had grace in the spiritual sense. He had grace, natural grace. When people say that someone's crazy or insane, they say that as a way to dismiss them, okay? And specifically to dismiss any statements they make as a witness and to discredit them, okay? However, even people who are afflicted with strange mental states still have a life. In reality, Carrie was an American original with deep roots in the world's fantastic tales and archetypes, and in America's obsession at mysterious connections and coincidences. There are not many witnesses left, and the archives are by no means accurate. Following years, so many books, theories, and alleged witnesses came out of the dark forest surrounding the Kennedy assassination that Kerry's lone voice almost became lost. But he was more than a footnote to the murder of JFK. He was one of the founders of our time, the awakener of heirs, the ubiquitous goddess of chaos. Here's what happened. It was Thursday, and it was Thanksgiving, and he was in the hospital. And his dialysis was supposed to be had on Thursdays. And when I call, and I was supposed to bring him a, a Thanksgiving dinner because of the crappy hospital food. I'd get some Thanksgiving dinner and bring it to him. So I called him, and, and he said, don't come. I don't feel like eating anything. He was mad. He was so mad. And he was saying, these sons of bitches won't dialyze me. And uh, he says, they're down there partying, and they won't give me dialysis. And he was mad, and we were kind of talking, and he's like, I got to go. And he's screaming at the doctors, which is not guaranteed to get results. I spent the night with a boyfriend, in a, not in my own bed, so I didn't really think I was sleeping or I don't know what, but it was like there was a funeral. We were in a hotel, and it was like there was a funeral in the hall of the hotel, and there were people walking the whole night where I was trying to sleep. And there was an old man laid out. And there was people walking, and it was a funeral while I was trying to sleep. And when I woke up and, and called, I found out he had died. Kerry Thornley died of cardiac arrest in Atlanta on November 28, 1998, at the age of 60. According to his Wikipedia page, the following morning, 23 people attended a Buddhist memorial service in his honor. His body had been cremated and his ashes scattered over the Pacific Ocean. Carrie Thornley is an unsolved mystery, 
and that is the best way to understand it. You cannot reach a conclusion in which you subscribe to something and which you rule out something else. You cannot solve the mystery, so you have to be comfortable living with something that's an unsolved mystery. It's only fitting we read one of his poems. This was Carrie's dream, to be a poet. It was what drew him to New Orleans as a young man. It is his poetry that makes him Carrie Thornley, and not just the second Oswald. Carrie Thornley to Mother Oswald. So crazy and bizarre. You seemed to me some 11 years ago. My karma came home. Now people see me so crazy and bizarre. Your son was tragically murdered and you wrote me asking for a copy of my book. And your syntax appeared weird. And you said you weren't sure he did defect. I thought, crazy lady, what is she talking about? Of course he defected. I remember reading about it in the Stars and Stripes. You said wild things in 1963, and I could not understand the oppression you expressed until I started saying really wild and provocative things to shock and piss people, at least trying to get them to pay attention, God damn it, in 1968 and 1969. I didn't send you a copy of The Idle Warriors because of your sentence structure and how you raved and ranted in public. Yes, you raved and ranted. Hell yes, you did. And of course, I understand now. Your little boy you loved was dead. And nearly everyone in America was hating him with fury that raved and ranted no less than yours. I love you now more than I can say, more than I can rave, rant, or sing with tears and a broken heart. Carrie Thornley, July 25, 1975. Of course, there is an epilogue to this podcast. New documents are being unearthed and more connections to the CIA are being revealed in this ongoing saga. One interesting development is the deathbed confession of E. Howard Hunt, which was recorded by his son, St. John Hunt. Here's an excerpt that was broadcast on Coast to Coast Live, a paranormal and conspiracy radio program out of Las Vegas. I think it's essential to refocus on what this information that I've been providing you, uh, and you alone, by the way, consists of what is important in the story is that we backtracked the chain of command up uh, through uh, through Cordmeyer and laying the the, uh, doings at the doorstep of LBJ. He, in my opinion, had an almost maniacal urge to become president. He regarded uh, JFK as as he was, in fact, an obstacle to achieving that. 
he could have waited for JFK to finish out his term and then undoubtedly a second term. So that would have put the LBJ at the head of a long list of people who were waiting for some change in the executive branch. What E. Howard Hunt is implying is that then Vice President Lyndon B. Johnson ordered the assassination of President Kennedy so that he could become president. This is a deathbed confession, and nothing is definitely said. Conspiracy theories are like a mirror on ourselves. They tell us more about the believers than the creators. Like all conspiracy theories, everything is up for interpretation. But who knows? Kerry is laughing. Eris is in stitches too. And Operation Operation Mindfuck Mindfuck continues. I am Andrei Kodrescu, and this was The Second Oswald, a Ratapalax production, produced by Ram Devineni, written and performed by Andrei Kodrescu. Audio engineered by René Veron. Supported through a grant from New York State Council on the Arts. All rights reserved. <laughs>